صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Nasser. How are you? Really well. Welcome back. Rob, we've got a fantastic person joining us today, a fantastic bloke out of the US. He's a historian of Palestine, Dr. Zach Foster. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you joining us. Zach, why don't you give us a little bit of your journey to Palestine? How did you come to Palestine? So I grew up in a Jewish household, in a Jewish community, attending Jewish schools, going to Jewish Zionist summer camp, going, uh, attending Jewish youth group events, going to Israel with my Jewish youth group. And so I was raised in this really, uh, I would say, very Zionist Jewish environment. And I think that's what got me interested in Israel in the first place. And then when I went to university, I started to learn the historian's point of view rather than the pundits or propagandists or Zionists point of view about the history of Palestine and the politics of Palestine. And, and that got me really interested in the history and uh, especially the history of the Palestinian people. Uh, because what I learned at university very much contradicted and conflicted with the stories that I was raised with. And, and that was really across the board from, from things like, there's no such thing as a Palestinian people, the famous Golda Meir quote that you've probably heard many times, to very much the modern politics around Yasser Arafat and how he, he famously, uh, and the, Pal- how the Palestinians famously, quote unquote, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So I was raised with all these uh, sort of, I would call them points of propaganda, uh, talking points, Zionist talking points, and they very much stood in contradiction to to the historian's perspective that I studied at university. And I think that's what got me more interested in Palestine was that was that disconnect, was that cognitive dissidence, and that led me to do gra- pursue graduate studies in Palestinian history and ultimately achieve dissertation on the history of the word of the name Palestine itself. When did people use that term? In what contexts? For what reasons? Where in the Middle East, in Europe, in the United States? And then also, uh, specifically, when did people start to call themselves Palestinians uh, and why? And what was it? What were the historical developments and processes that led people to start calling themselves Palestinians? I would say those were the two main questions that I focused on in my dissertation research. Zach, increasingly, and you're an embodiment of young Jews moving away from the concept of Zionism, you know, white supremacy movement. You're the embodiment of that. Take us through that journey. Couldn't have been easy to go from youth camp and shul and very Zionist quintessential upbringing that you've had to where you are today. Absolutely. It was it was definitely a process. It doesn't happen overnight. I would say the first the first murmurings for me personally of of that cognitive dissidence that I was that I had mentioned was when I traveled to Jerusalem as a study abroad student, I was interested in studying in my quote unquote homeland. Uh, I wanted to improve my Hebrew. And so I enrolled in an Ulpan, which is a, a Hebrew intensive language course, generally taken by new immigrants. 
and new Jewish immigrants. And so I'm in this ulpan with actually many Palestinian students from East Jerusalem who also were trying to learn Hebrew. And this was the first moment, the first encounter that I can remember of meeting Palestinians face to face learning about their stories, getting interested in their backgrounds, hearing about what kinds of things they had to deal with just to even get to campus. And so this just got me so curious, first of all, because I just knew nothing. I, I was just an open book, right? I, I had no prior knowledge aside from all the propaganda about who these people were and what their stories were. And so as the curious person that I was, I started meeting them like for a language. We, we were both trying to learn Hebrew, right? So it was like, first we met learning, like practicing Hebrew together. But increasingly, I, I just grew more interested in Arabic. And so uh, started doing some, some Arabic exchanges with them. And then I would say that was the first domino to fall. The second thing that happened for me personally was that led me to then start reading more about the Israel-Palestine conflict, more from a, a critical historian's perspective, the new Israeli historians. Maybe you've heard that term thrown around, people like Abi Shlaim, people like Benny Morris, whose politics are a bit problematic, but leave his politics aside. But the history that he's written on the, the Palestinian refugee issue, obviously, Ilan Pape, the author of the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, one of the most brilliant books ever written about the 1948 war. Norma Salha, who wrote a very uh, interesting book on the lead up to the 1948 war and the Zionist thinking leading up to it and how many Zionist thinkers were planning or thinking about the concept of expelling Palestinians already for decades before 1948. This was a topic that had come up really uh, continuously over the previous decade among Zionists. So I started reading this history and getting much more familiar with what with the Zionist narrative, which was incredibly problematic from the very beginning. And so that was, I think, the second domino to fall. And then I would say the third thing that happened was that I went on this program, uh, Half Palestinians, Half Jews, uh, with a program called Abraham's Vision, which is, I believe, now somewhat defunct. But at the time, we went to the Balkans, Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Croatia, Kosovo. And we traveled around the Balkans as part of this comparative conflict analysis program in order to de-exceptionalize Israel-Palestine, to say, hey, look, the Israelis and Palestinians are not the only people in conflict. They're not the only people fighting over land. Let's try and de-exceptionalize this conflict, try and step outside of our, our own comfort zone and, and try and understand what's going on in the Balkans, why uh, Serbs, Bosnians, Croatians, uh, uh, Albanian Kosovars, why they were killing each other in the 90s. And maybe that will give us some perspective over, um, maybe that will help us understand what's going on in Israel-Palestine. And, and so I would say those were really the triggers. And then after I finished my undergraduate degree, I was just, I got so obsessed with trying to learn Arabic and trying to just immerse myself in, in the Arabic-speaking Middle East, lived in uh, Jerusalem for a year, lived in Syria for six months, went back to Israel-Palestine uh, Israel for another six months in Neve Shalom Salam, And from there, I went on to pursue my graduate studies. So I would say that's sort of the short story of how I got into Israel-Palestine from, say, the... Uh, say the Palestinians point of view or more of a, let's say historians point of view, a more critical point of view than from the one I was raised with. Zach, I was just going to ask, just going back to when you started to find out about whether you'd been lied to, what were the feelings when you actually did find out that everything you'd sort of been taught growing up was not true? Did you feel that you'd been lied to? Oh no, absolutely. I felt like I had been lied to. And I think that, that feeling of betrayed or deceived uh, was very much what led me to to go so deep into Palestinian history and 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 studying the broader Middle East. It was precisely that feeling of feeling, yeah, like here I was totally unaware of what was going on. And I, even my first couple of years at university, before I had really started to to become more critical, I was part of the pro pro Israel uh, organization, right? Like I was 
I was all in. I was very much part of my identity because I was open-minded and because I actually just wanted to know the history and wanted to understand what was really going on on the ground that my eyes were opened up. But, but most people, I think, generally speaking, just don't have that kind of open mind and are, are sort of not willing to really check their own assumptions and challenge the stories and narratives that they were raised with. But absolutely, I, I very much felt lied to. So is that one of the realities? The community is very sticky, quote unquote. It's not easy to leave. And then I can only imagine the vitriol that was thrown at you in the extended community for taking this position. No question about that. Look, my brother's a rabbi. We grew up going to shul every week. When you go to shul in the semi, I would say conservative, lower C conservative, um, when you go to shul at these synagogues, like my shul, for example, they would pass out flyers for to congregants to donate to the friends of the Israeli Defense Forces. Okay, there was no separation between Judaism and Israel at the synagogue. It was to be a Jewish, to be a proud Jew, to be a a believing Jew, a praying Jew, a practicing Jew, meant to be pro-Israel. And so, I think that the first time I really was was just absolutely disgusted was when it was 2008 actually was um was the first moment i remember feeling that like extreme outrage was when we were i think it was the, the height of it was july 20 2008 was when there was that hezbollah war with israel you know the entire american jewish community was just uh, you know 100 behind israel and so here we were in a synagogue in a place a sacred place of worship where i'm supposed to connect to god and feel spiritual and have a spiritual experience here. I was being inundated with politics. It just felt so grotesque. I think that was another, I would maybe call it the fourth or fifth domino, was feeling that outrage. That definitely led me to, I think, become even more anger and even more hostile to sort of Zionist narratives. Your family, how's your family taking it? Well, <laughs> it's a great question. I would say that I think we've already realized that Israel-Palestine politics are not a healthy topic of conversation within the family. <laughs> and so... We've just tended to 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 avoid it altogether. I think is is basically been the status quo for many many years now, um, yeah. and and very occasionally, like there'll be a moment where there's like a lapse in judgment, and this happened just uh, just actually a couple of months ago. If you recall, when um, there was that recent flare up in Gaza, it was um, just a, a month or two ago, yeah. and um, you know Israel was dropping bombs as it always does on civilian populations committing war crimes as it often does um, my brother kind of casually I, I was with my family at the time we're on a family vacation and my brother just casually asked so what, what do you what do you think about the situation kind of nonchalantly very casually and I, you know I, I wasn't gonna deflect the question I was happy to talk about it I'm always happy to talk about it it's just usually they're the ones who, who have realized it's probably not a healthy conversation to have um, for the family. But yeah, it was like, well, it's pretty obvious what's happening. Yair Lapid has an election coming up. He is going to be facing off with, you know, Benny Gantz, who bragged about uh, sending Gaza back to the Stone Age, but essentially bragging about committing war crimes. So he's basically you have this new prime minister who's younger, who doesn't have the military background and military experience, is trying to compete with Benny Gantz. He's trying to compete with, obviously, Bibi Netanyahu, and he needs to bolster up his security credibility credentials and so the obvious move for him is to bomb gaza because that's going to make him look strong in the eyes of the israeli public and the same was true i would say not just Yair Lapid, but also tali bennett both of them are trying to boost their security credentials at the cost of tremendous palestinian loss of life and suffering literally innocent palestinians are dying so that naftali bennett can win a re-election or so that Yair Lapid can win a re-election i mean 
the grotesqueness of this. And, and so this is the conversation I'm having with my brother. And at some point, obviously, you know, I think he realized like, oh, you know, let, let, let's get back to talking about, I don't know, falafel and hummus or whatever we were talking about. But yeah, it's it's obviously a very, very sensitive topic and we just don't go there anymore. I'm sorry about that. Back to the Balkans, you know, you're saying that the whole concept was to de-exceptionalize Palestine, Israel and say other people fight over land. I mean, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I mean, the reality as we see it as Palestinians, Israel's a colonial enterprise. Whereas in the Balkans, this isn't a colonial experience that fight there. That's a great point. Yeah, um, there's definitely some very important differences. And I, I completely agree with you that I would not describe the situation in the Balkans as a colonial um, as a colonial situation. However, there are some parallels with what Serbia did to Kosovo in the 90s and 2000s, right? So um, there are many uh, parts of Kosovo that experienced an influx of Serbian were essentially Serbian settler colonists. So you had these Serbian populations that were essentially transplanted from Serbian uh, mainland. And so there, there are some parallels uh, uh, in terms of, again, I would say the specifically with regard to Serbia and Kosovo, where Serbians talk about how, oh, the Battle of 1389, this is, you know, Kosovo is part of the historic Serbia, right? Like the, the Jews would say the same, uh, Israeli Jews would say similar things about Judea and Samaria, as they would call it, right? Where this is part of our historic homeland. Right. Um, and so the, the, there are certain parallels that can be drawn. But I, I would tend to agree with you that, it, that there are obviously some important differences as well, including maybe the broader set, settler colonial context. Jay, you've got a PhD in the, the invention of Palestine, which when you see the words there, you think, oh, my gosh, what's this about? Tell us, how did you come across doing that? And tell us a little bit about the PhD, because it sounds fascinating. Yeah. So the, for, for, for many decades, I would say there's been a genre of literature called, you know, the invention of insert whatever you study here, the invention of nature, the invention of science, the invention of Israel, the invention of the Jewish people, a very popular book. What we've come to realize as historians is that all of these concepts, peoples, ethnicities, races, nations, places themselves, they're all just social constructs, right? If you go and ask a typologist, or a specialist in soil, or a specialist in topography. There is no such thing as Germany, or France, or Italy, or Israel, or Palestine. These are all constructs that human beings have invented. And so what I've tried to do over the course of the, of the dissertation is try and explain when, why, and how this concept of Palestine came about, and when, why, and how people identified with that place called Palestine, and thus when, why, and how people identified as Palestinians. So from uh, from a bird's eye view, I try and explore these questions. And so I'm very much taking, I would say, the, the you know, the super, super bird's eye view, like the 100,000 foot overview of, of the history of these concepts, which I would say is generally a very, it's a very unconventional approach for a dissertation, right? Dissertations tend to cover, in history at least, they tend to cover, you know, could be a few years of history, maybe a few decades of history, but you know, a few millennia or a few tens of thousands of years, like no one's writing dissertations spanning tens of thousands of years of history. And so that's sort of, I would say, one very unique thing I tried to do in their dissertation was zoom out. Obviously, that makes it harder to do other things, right? That means you can't get as deep into the weeds in, in every single period or, or it, with as many sources as you could otherwise. But I think that bird's eye view does add some extra insight into the history of these concepts. And so start off in the the, the pre-modern, uh, sorry, the pre-modern world, really the, the pre-Neolithic world before there was even writing, right? And so I'm asking myself, like, when is it that Homo sapiens in human history began to identify with places like Palestine? And, I, and when I say like Palestine, what I mean is a very, very large space a, a, a space so large that you cannot see with your own two eyes. 
a space so large that you need things like maps. You need things like history books. You, you need things like geography books. You need institutions dedicated to the study of those places. You need all of these things to make those places seem real. Because again, you're like, like I said, you can't see them. You, you can see a city, you can see your family. You can see a town, a village. So you can identify with those things much easier because we're a very visual species. We need to see things if we want to be able to identify with them. And so I think, it, you know, really zooming out. So I'm trying to understand really when do these do the, all of these things like maps, like history books, like geography books, like institutions dedicated to Palestine. When do these things come about? When do they get popular? When do maps start spreading uh, maps of Palestine? When do they start spreading? When do kids start learning about Palestine in schools? When do kids start taking trips around Palestine and learning about Palestine's sacredness and about Palestine's holiness? When do all those things start to happen in history? And so what I try and argue is that if you can trace those things and you can see when they start to spread and when people start to read history and geography books of map and, and, and see maps of Palestine, my argument is that then you would start to see Palestinian identity. And so this happens in the 10th century, and it also happens in the late 19th century. That, that That's, I would say, if I had to summarize my dissertation in a few minutes, that's how I would summarize it. How was it received? I mean, you have to defend it, you know, your dissertation. I just imagine, you know, at, at Princeton, you know, Ivy League College, that, you know, they all lined up to go, how dare you? You're absolutely right. I, I definitely got a lot of pushback from the dissertation on many, many fronts. I got pushback from many Zionists, obviously, because I'm saying a lot of things that Zionists are uncomfortable with. I'm challenging a number of Zionist myths, which which I'm happy to get into, such as this myth that the Roman emperor Hadrian vengefully erased the name Judea in 135 CE, and he replaced it with the name Palestine. After crushing the Bar Kokhba revolt, I tried to dispel that myth. And I also tried to dispel all these myths around southern Syria. There's a popular Zionist myth that how Palestinians always called the place Syria. There, there was no, you know, that they themselves called it even southern Syria, which I get into the, the, the story of when that phrase came about and when it got popular and why. Tour of that story is that basically uh, the phrase southern Syria was never really all that popular in the history of Palestine, really ever, just for a very short two year period uh, from 1918 to 1920. And essentially, ever since then, it's been politicized on both sides, actually, by both Palestinians and, and Jewish Zionists. On the Palestinian side, Palestinians have tried to explain that in order, they've tried to explain to the British that if only Palestine, so, so they try to explain that, like, basically, there was no Palestine, that it was always Syria, because they wanted unity with Syria, because they believed that that was the best approach of freeing Palestine from British colonialism and from Zionism. And they thought, actually, that was the best way to end Zionist immigration and end, um, you know, Zionist land purchases. And so out of their love for Palestine, out of their desire to to decolonize Palestine, they, they opposed even the concept of Palestine because they thought that would lead the British to hand over Palestine to Syria and the French Syrian government. So that, that that's another myth I try and dispel. I obviously get into uh, the origins of the Palestinian people. You probably uh, know the myths around Golda Meir famously saying there's no such thing as a Palestinian. And it's not just Golda Meir, by the way. If you, if you look at many American uh, politicians Ted Cruz, yeah. Newt Gingrich, Mike Huckabee, you have many mainstream Republican politicians in the US repeating, regurgitating this nonsense. And so I try and get into the origins of when did people start to call themselves Palestinians? Uh, 1890s is the answer, not 1960s. Um, so that, that's another myth I try to dispel. On the one hand, um, I got a lot of pushback from Zionists. On the other hand, I got pushback actually from some academics as well, including, I would say, my own dis dissertation advisor, as well as some other members of my committee, because I was interested in trying to reach a broader audience. I was interested in speaking to people who don't have an academic 
academic background, who aren't really interested in the academic debates, who are actually much more curious about the propaganda and believe in the propaganda or disbelieve in the propaganda. So I was trying to speak to those broader audiences, not just in the content, but also in the writing style. And so those things, those things definitely were a, t- a huge turnoff for my uh, dissertation advisor and, and also for a number of, uh, um, I would say most members of my committee were also a little bit put off by it. Again, it's really, there's nothing good or bad about certain writing styles. It just depends on who you're trying to reach. Yeah. So um, that, those are the two points I would make about um, the pushback was, was the, I would say the Zionist pushback and also the academic pushback. We can't divorce the concept, uh, Malcolm Hollyane, and I want to read that quote and talk about this, that he said that the Roman emperor, Herodian, this started when the Romans changed the name of Judea to Philistia. This was the beginning of BDS. So, you know. 1800 years ago, we can't divorce the concept of Palestinians being a made up people from the propaganda that wants to disassociate up native indigenous people from a bit of dirt and, you know, the colonial consequences of that. Absolutely. For many decades, uh, there has been an effort on the part of historians, including some of the most respected historians ever to have written about the Middle East. Um, including some of the most famous and most influential historians, Bernard Lewis, chief among them, um, who have been hell-bent on trying to undermine the existence of a Palestinian people. And and the reason is quite obvious, right? For them, uh, for those folks who believe in nation states and who believe that nations have rights to self-determination, the very existence of a Palestinian people is obviously very problematic for the Zionist narrative because it means that the Zionists don't have exclusive rights, exclusive national rights to this land that they have to share with the Palestinians. And so that's obviously hugely problematic. And so wouldn't it be great if there were no Palestinians, if they had never had any connection to Palestine? In fact, wouldn't it be great if they never even identified as Palestinian? So so there's been this entire um, genre of history writing that has been dedicated to trying to point out all of these instances where they think either Palestinians call themselves the other things, Arabs, S- Southern Syrians, or even to try and even delegitimize even the name Palestine, right? So this is where this story comes into play, where there's this desire to even identify the first political usage of the word Palestine in history, which they claim comes after the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 CE. We're talking 1900 years ago, there was this desire to try and claim that, you know, even this very first instance of Palestine in history was somehow delegitimate or somehow anti-Semitic or somehow, yeah, uh, the first instance of BDS as that, uh, according to the quote you just cited. Crazy stuff. As a Palestinian, this whole debate is about demonizing Palestinians and to frame us as usurpers of the land, to uh, tie us to some sort of Roman persecution of Jews. It's purely politically motivated, you know, a talking point among Zionists and their supporters to just, you know, remove us from our indigeneity. And it forces Palestinians to constantly refocus and refight an existing fight that we're not indigenous, that we didn't belong, that, you know, in fact, yes, Arafat's Egyptian, that Palestinians just came in from Jordan, the land, you know, was there was nobody in the land. It was a land without people for a people without a land. Hopefully with work like yours, Zach, we look forward to the day when we're not having to fight these battles anymore and we can recover a hijacked history that's been just manipulated for a Zionist narrative. Zach, your YouTube channel, it's great how you uh, deliver these little vignettes into bite-sized morsels. We'll put a link to it in, in the podcast list. And so get a chance, go on there and watch some of Zach's work. It's great. What made you want to start that channel? 
that's a great question. I I think what what happened was that I was I was trying to get into comedy of all things, and uh, I felt comedy is such a is such a great tool to communicate. Um, I feel like um, you can get across a message much easier if you use comedy um, than you can otherwise, um, because it's it's just universal, right? Everyone loves comedy. Find me a person who doesn't love comedy, um, and uh, well, I guess. I don't know what to say, but everyone loves comedy. So that that was really the origin story. And so I wanted to do comedy on YouTube. I also wanted to, um, I also obviously wanted to uh, talk about the Middle East and talk about Palestine specifically. And uh, and so started producing YouTube content. I think um, what I realized was that I was doing I was doing stand up comedy, and you know here I am like in a room with uh, I'm at a dive bar in the Mission at like five thirty p.m. And the only people watching are other stand-up comics and they're not even paying attention because they're all practicing their own sets. And I'm not having any impact. I'm not reaching anyone. No one cares what I'm saying. I can't really talk about Palestine because no one in the room really cares about Palestine. Uh, so it just didn't feel like the right medium for me. And I didn't feel like I was able to reach the audience I was looking for. And so I switched to YouTube, started producing YouTube content. Um, the other thing that occurred to me along the way was that I myself much preferred to watch and listen than I did to read. Um, reading is not a natural thing for Homo sapiens. You know, writing and reading only dates a few to a few thousand years ago. Whereas listening and watching is a skill we've been honing for many, many millions of years. Um, and so it's just more natural to our species to want to watch and listen to something than it is to to want to read something. And so I think that was another thing that I always had in my mind and always. Um, and I always personally preferred to to like listen to an audiobook that rather than read it. Now, don't get me wrong, I I, I wrote a hundred thousand words and had to read, <laughs> read a lot of books in the process of writing the, that PhD dissertation. So I'm certainly not against reading. In fact, I love reading as well. But I, I just wanted to explore another medium as well. And so I would say those were some of the the triggers. And I think along the way, what what, what was what was occurring to me was, you know, I, I would get comments along the lines of. You know, oh hey, I I love that video that you you made, or hey, um, uh, you know, I I never thought about th that thing, you know, but always related to the, the video content I was producing. Never related to the very few people would um would you know comment on things that I had written. It was always things that I had I had uh, so audio video materials that I produced that people would 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 reach out to me personally about. And so I think that just just gave me more confidence and 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 pushed me further because you have to realize YouTube is is gruesome, okay. There's something like I forget the numbers. What you know, um, you know, uh, something like six hundred thousand hours of YouTube are uh, hundreds of hundreds of hours of YouTube are uploaded every minute. Like basically, like the, you know, the, there's just so much. There's so much content on YouTube. So many YouTubers. So many channels. I think there's more than a million channels that. No, yep. I'm, I'm, I, I can't remember the numbers. I've, every number I've cited in the past thirty seconds, you should ignore. Um, I don't remember the numbers, but but basically, it's like. It is the platform to be producing audio video content on. It has the biggest uh, distribution. Um, people under the age of 18 consume more YouTube than anything else, including TikTok. So it, it's just, it's the place to be if you want to be producing audio visual content. Two things quickly. My YouTube channel was uh, banned and deleted. So that was fun. The other thing, three words or three short things, Indiana Jones, maps and Turkey. What does that mean to you? <laughs> Thanks for asking that question, Robert. I, um, I'm a big I'm a big maps uh, enthusiast, maps collector. I, I I absolutely love maps. I think they're aesthetically pleasing, so I I hang them on my walls. So I love I, I think they make for great wall art. I think they're 
uh, historically very fascinating and interesting and can tell you a lot about the past. So I think they're very rich for the purposes of, of trying to understand the past. So they have archival value, they have research value. Um, they're also great stores of value, by the way, because they're one of a kind objects. Um, so they also, I think, make for great personal investments. Um, and on top of all that, um, I just absolutely love the process of finding maps I've never seen before. And so I go around whenever I'm traveling and I love to travel. So whenever I'm traveling, I, I go to the map dealers, the, the antique book dealers, the, um, the, the old markets where you can find basically uh, people uh, selling these things. So in uh, Istanbul, is just a gold mine. Okay. If there was ever a place that I would describe as an absolute gold mine for finding maps and, and, and antique books and old documents, uh, personal files, personal letters, uh, diaries that, you know, th these are individual documents that there's only one of one copy in the entire world. Okay. You can find all that stuff in the, um, Sahaf Tartalars in Istanbul. Okay. These places are just absolute gold mines. And if you speak some Turkish, uh, which I do, you can get access to stuff you really can't get access to otherwise. So I go around, I, I try and, you know, chat, uh, I try and be extra chatty with these antique book dealers. Cause by the way, like no one's like, they don't, people go in like, do you have a, this book? And because, you know, I'm sitting with them for hours, right? And the people come in and they're like, do you have this book on, you know, Atatürk or whatever? And they're like, no. And so, they, you know, they don't have, most customers don't come in wanting to chat, wanting to get to know them. But that's me, right? I'm First of all, I want to become their friend because that is how you get access to the good stuff. Um, Zach, most people prospecting for gold don't tell anybody the address where they're prospecting. You've probably given the address to everyone searching for antique maps and all the good stuff, exactly where to go. Mate, thanks so very much for your time. Listeners, that was Dr. Zachary Foster, Palestinian historian, all-round good guy. Do yourself a favor, go to the podcast link. There'll be a link there for his PhD, but also a link to his YouTube channel. You'll lose an afternoon watching some of his work. It's really, really great. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and remember... There's never been a better time for a free Palestine.